Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solar Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nick is and all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. We're going to be talking about the concept of truth today. You know, if you went back maybe about 50 years or so ago, you'd have debates going on still. Pretty much everyone agreed that there is such a thing as truth. Where nowadays, that's not so clear. Nowadays, relativism has come through, and a lot of people will not take truth so seriously. And sadly, this is even in the church. This can take place on social media everywhere. Well, to discuss this, I've brought Abdu Murray on, because his latest book is about this topic, Saving Truth. Abdu is a North American director of Ralphie Zacharias International Ministries, He's the author of three books, including his latest bestseller, Saving Truth, which we're talking about today, Finding Meaning and Clarity in Post-Truth World. For most of his life, he was a proud Muslim who studied the Quran and Islam. After a nine-year investigation into the historical, philosophical, and scientific underpinnings of major world religions and views, he discovered that historical Christian faith alone can answer questions of our mind and the longings of our heart. He has spoken to diverse international audiences and has participated in debates and dialogues across the globe. He's appeared as a guest on numerous radio and television programs all over the world and hosts a podcast, Embrace for Truth with Abdu Murray. He holds a BA in psychology from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and earned his Juris Doctor from the University of Michigan Law School. As an attorney, Abdu was named several times in Best Lawyers in America and Michigan Super Lawyer. Abdu is a scholar in residence of Christian Thought and Apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan. University. He lives in the Detroit, Michigan area with his wife and their three children. Abdu, you've been on before, so welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Nick, it's great to be back, and uh, thanks for having me. And thanks for all you do, by the way. Deeper Waters is a great podcast, and the, the blog and all that. And I see your active work on Unbelievable. And you're just always engaging everybody, I think, thoughtfully, uh, convictingly, uh, yet compassionately. So I really appreciate your work. 
I really appreciate hearing that it, it's good to get kind of compliments and such, which is another reason people I tell you, please leave your uh, positive reviews of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. But after if my audience doesn't remember you from last time and maybe they haven't heard of you, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. Well, it was the story begins actually with the fact that I wasn't Christian, mm-hmm. as you mentioned in the um, uh, the intro. Um, I was raised as a Shiite Muslim, and I was pretty serious about it. And I was actually a Muslim apologist. Um, I would do I would engage mostly in just conversations with people about matters of faith, and I engaged with Christians uh, who actually were um, sort of bountiful fruit, or actually low hanging fruit, mm-hmm. in the area I grew up in because. It, it used to be there was a few Muslim families who lived there, but not very many. Um, and it was, you know, pretty white and and, and Christian. Um, so we were sort of, as I say, often the dash of olive oil in the sea of rice, uh, as it were. And so we were exotic, and people wanted to talk to us uh, because Islam wasn't the thing it is today. This is way before nine eleven, and no one really knew anything about it. So um, they asked me lots and lots of questions. So it gave me lots and lots of opportunities to talk about why Islam was true and everything else, especially Christianity, was false. Well, um, uh, there were people who knew what they were talking about. Not, not, a, not a lot, though. Sadly, I, I would say that most Christians had no response to my objections. But there were some people who did know what they were talking about. And that started getting me on towards a journey uh, to seeing the evidence uh, for the Christian faith um, in every aspect, you know, philosophical, historical. The historical part was a big thing because— for me, um, I originally felt like philosophy could be manipulated. Um, now I've come to see that when history ba- undergirds philosophy and science begins to back something up as well, and then it actually starts to matter to you in an existential way, that's really the full forming of a worldview. And Christianity began to do all that for me. And it was really bothering me because I didn't want it to. Um, then, you know, nine years later, I found myself uh, embracing uh, the gospel and becoming a Christian. And since that time, um, I was doing ministry on the side while I was practicing law for the time. Mm-hmm. Then I um, uh, started my own ministry, which was called Embrace the Truth, um, and did that for a while. It was apologetics evangelism, really. Um, my main focus was to uh, go into tough settings to try to evangelize those who were in sort of the, at the intellectual edge, as it were, people who were the hardest to reach, uh, but also helped Christians to do the same. Doing that part-time on the side— uh, and then ministry opportunities started to grow, um, and uh, I wasn't just focusing on Islam anymore. It was other issues. It was matters of truth. It was ish science and faith issues, you name it. And then RZIM and I did some um, uh, events together, and as uh, we started sort of you know, dancing around uh, this relationship that we had started to grow, um, they eventually asked me uh, to join the team and said, hey, we have an opening for someone to run the North American operations, and that's how I became the North American director of uh, RZIM. So my primary ministry is speaking and writing, uh, but it also includes the you know, leading the charge with the speaking team in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, but also it takes me all over the world. Um, in fact, just got back from Sri Lanka uh, a few days ago, uh, a trip there, and um, I've been really blessed to be a part of this ministry and see the global impact it's having. So it was a long route, but it was one that was definitely worth it. You know, we uh, had John Stewart on here a couple of weeks or so ago talking about his book, In Defense of the Gospels, and 
he's a lawyer as well. And when I get lawyers on here, I always have this urge to ask them the same question. Is it is it really possible to be a lawyer in a Christian boat? <laughs> Unfortunately, there are fewer of us that I would, I would care to admit. Uh, but there are some. I'll tell you this. This is interesting. Um, I started practicing law. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of non-Christians. And I was actually nervous. Um, I had become a Christian right before I started practicing law. I was a Muslim in law school, graduated law school, became a Christian, and then started my law practice. And I was at a big, big firm. And I was always nervous that, you know, um, it would be difficult to maintain a sense of integrity while being a lawyer, because I had heard all the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I was blessed to actually be around even non-Christian lawyers who really felt a sense of integrity. Um, Now, there were some who were exactly the kind of person you think that a lawyer would be. And that's, I ran into plenty of those. But Mm -hmm. I did run into a few who actually, even opponent, people on the other side, opposing counsel, who would, as a young man, would give me tips on like, hey, you know, this is a great way you argued this. Maybe you should frame it this way next time. Or, you know, um, here's some tips for you on this judge. And I was like, wow, this is actually a bit of a fraternity of people who actually care about this profession. Mm-hmm. Um, they were fewer and far between than I, I, would, I, would, I would have liked. But the good news is they were actually there. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it, it, is a tough, it is a tough business to, to maintain your Christian integrity. Um, I've met a few and we, we tend to band together at the Christian legal society. You tend to band together because you're like, Oh my goodness, I found one, you know? Mm-hmm. Now this, the book here we got is a saving truth and it's about uh, finding meaning, clarity and post-truth world. So maybe we need to discuss what's meant by a post-truth world. Sure. Yep. So uh, in 2016, Oxford English dictionary named this word of the year. Uh, as post-truth. And um, uh, what Oxford does every single year is it names a word of the year. It doesn't have to be a new word. It just has to be a word that captures the the, 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 the pathos and the fascinations and the trends of Western society for that year. So in 2016 was the election cycle and, you know, all the things that were happening with the various, you know, words like fake news and all this and alternative facts. Well, post-truth was a word that was used. It was coined in 1992, but it was coined um, in, uh, th- back then, but it was used 2,000 times more in 2016 than it was in the previous years combined. Uh, and, the, and what it basically means is, um, there's, there's sort of a dictionary definition of it, but then there's the, a breakdown of it basically means this. Something is post-truth or someone is post-truth when they elevate feelings and preferences over facts and truth. And that's different than postmodern. Postmodernism uh, is compl- not complicated, but it's got more facets than this. But the baseline is there are no objective truths. But post-truth doesn't say that. Post-truth says there are objective truths, but I don't care. My preferences matter more. So if my preferences happen to line up with the truth, well, that's great. But if the truth and the facts happen to go against my preferences, well, they're not as important as my preferences. So my preferences trump them still. So it's a little bit more difficult, I think, to deal with a post-truth mindset than a post-modern mindset. Yeah, I can't help but think of that song from several, several years ago. It shows how far back to go. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that's the moral claim. It's a moral claim, not a truth claim. Um, and even, even that moral, which is, of course, a moral, a truth claim. Morality, I, I believe in moral truths. But that was more of a, and it, but they thought it was a moral claim. But that was really a preference claim. That wasn't a moral claim. 
It wasn't a moral claim based on truth. It was totally a, a preference claim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'd be easy for us to talk about how the world has fallen into this trap so much, but we honestly need to start by our own side. The church has done it as well. I, I don't know how many people I meet who determine the will of God and such based on, but here's how I feel about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I call it, it seems to me, theology. You know, it's, uh, well, it seems to me that, well, if you, if what you mean by it seems to me is that I've read the scriptures carefully, I've tried to interpret them using sound hermeneutical principles, Mm -hmm. and what I understand the the scriptures to mean, well, I can respect that. Mm -hmm. But if your view is, it seems to me that God would send no one to hell, and therefore I don't think there is a hell, well, that's not really strong Mm -hmm. biblical exegesis, that's complete eisegesis of preference. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that for a long time. Um, you know, often you think of that uh, most, the most often quoted, or I should say misquoted, verse of the Bible in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to stop right there um, because we don't, our preference is to look non-judgmental and to not judge anybody's personal choices and personal preferences. When in fact you read the rest of the passage and you find out very quickly that Jesus is saying, don't judge hypocritically. But when you do judge, and you should judge behaviors, do it with, um, uh, with uh, integrity. And, do it with, and, and look inside before you judge anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we've got friends, I'm sure, who are annihilationists and such. And so uh, we have to say, you know, when people say, I don't think God would send there, that there would be a hell of... God's just, I mean, the conclusion could be entirely true still, but if you base it on your feelings, mm-hmm. you don't really have a good argument for it. Right, and, and that's exactly the point, is that if someone comes to a conclusion, like, for example, on annihilationism, and there are some giants in the Christian faith who have been annihilationists, mm-hmm. but actually taken a careful scriptural study of it, um, and have said, look, I've looked at this, and the scripture itself has convinced me that this is the case, as opposed to saying, my feelings were this, I looked for something in scripture to validate my feelings and then have my feelings validated. That's a completely different thing. And I think that you're, when, you know, the, the, uh, one of the things that I wanted to point out in the book, in chapter two especially, was the fact that the church has to look into, it, into itself before it can start diagnosing the culture as being you know, subsumed in a post-truth world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the church really has contributed to the post-truth culture of confusion in, in quite a, quite a, quite a, but sadly, quite a strong way. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let me give an example. It's even before Facebook happened, politically, I have always been a conservative. I, I'm probably somewhere to the right of Rush Limbaugh in such in politics. Uh-huh. And, but I've also been a person who takes truth first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes when I'd be at my computer, my, my dad would send out what I call an email blast to a bunch of people and say, here's the latest thing that Obama has done, because that's back when he was president and such. Now, I was no fan of Obama at all. I couldn't, I, I, you, I'm sure we can all guess how I saw him and such. But I'd look at these things each time. I'd do a little bit of checking. Sometimes it'd be just... Five minutes worth of checking, and I could see the story was completely fake. And I'd have to hit reply all and say, 
everyone, please do not pay attention to this story. This story is false. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it got kind of embarrassing mm-hmm. for me after a while. And it, it's a, it's wrong when anyone else does it. But, you know, we're Christians. Mm-hmm. We're people committed to truth. And the story that I found that I would get, it would take five minutes to look into, and I could see what's false. Now, if you go and you share a story that takes five minutes to look into and see that's false, what happens when you go and men share a story that says, hey, um, there was a guy who was 40 God and 40 men and lived 2,000 years ago, and he rose from the dead. Is anyone going to spend the five minutes going to, if someone can disprove one claim by looking for five minutes, are they really going to spend the time to look and see about this other claim? Right. And that's the credibility issue. You hit it right on the head. In fact, I actually give an example in the book about something so similar. Um, I think the church um, uh, succumbs to the post-truth world in two ways. And it's that whole, you know, that phrase we always talk about, be in but not of the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, The church is becoming in and of the culture and uh, we can do better. Um, uh, And there's two ways. The first way I think the church succumbs to a post-truth culture is we want to be liked so much that we're willing to say and compromise on scripture. And, you know, Matthew chapter seven, judge not, uh, that's a compromise that, that starts the road to compromise because then all of a sudden various forms of, uh, you know, sexuality or various uh, interpretations of scripture or, uh, you know, a universalism, these things begin to creep in because we want to be liked so much. And I understand the need for that. You don't want to be offensive and obnoxious, mm-hmm. but we haven't tempered that with conviction. The, the pendular swing the other way, though, is that we want to? We don't care if we're liked. We want to make our enemies look as bad as possible, and that's what where the email chains come out. The example I remember thinking about when uh, I was writing this book was uh, after the Obergefell decision happened in 2015, um, with that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Uh, I got a bunch of emails. I got some my Twitter feed and my Facebook was sort of lighting up with people who were uh, sharing a story. Uh, they were saying things like, that didn't take long. See, we told you they would use the Supreme Court uh, decision on same-sex marriage to outlaw Christianity. And maybe that'll happen one day. I don't know. But they were saying it happened now. And the story headlines were basically saying that there was a, a homosexual LGBT activist who had sued two Christian publishers because they published a Bible. Uh, and that includes uh, anti-same-sex behavior passages. And so the headlines were reading you know, homosexual activists sued in federal court to ban the Bible as hate speech. Well, I was thinking to myself, well, that can't be right because Obergefell has nothing to do with that. Um, so I began to look and it took me, you said five minutes. This one took me three minutes um, worth it. I mean, I have to put it this way, less than a commercials break, less than mm-hmm. a radio commercial break or a TV commercial break to find out that, yeah, there was an LGBT activist who sued two Christian publishers in federal court, but he wasn't seeking to ban the Bible. He actually claimed that the publishers mistranslated it so that it wasn't gay affirming and that hurt him emotionally. And he wanted money damages. He didn't want to ban the Bible. Um, And he didn't file a lawsuit after the Obergefell decision in 2015. He filed it seven years before the Obergefell decision. And all these people who I think, and a lot of whom I respected actually, we're clicking share or like or whatever it was on this story as if it was true without bothering to check. Mm-hmm. And it takes three minutes. So you're exactly right. Why in the world would someone who's not a Christian 
believe anything we say if we're so quick to share things that we either know or should know are false. Now, um, I think the important part here isn't just that we be consistent with the truth, is that we actually sort of slow our roll, as it were. Um, I think I think one of the reasons why people do that, Nick, is mm-hmm. because, um, one, there's a desire to make our enemies look as bad as possible. And C.S. Lewis, as he talks about that, when he says, you know, if you find some story that makes your enemies look as bad as possible, some atrocity, then you find out later that it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Is your first reaction to be disappointed or are you elated? Thank God, not even they're as bad as that. Mm-hmm. He's saying, if you're disappointed, then soon you'll see white as gray, gray as black, and soon your own heart will become that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not part of a Christian. Yeah. Um, but I think that in our world of social media, Christians get so nervous about lies spreading and fake news, so to speak, spreading around the world. Um, you know, we have this phrase, when things go fast, we call it the speed of light. Uh, nowadays in the information age, it's the speed of lies. One of the fastest things in the world is misinformation. So we get nervous and we're like, we, we have to counter that. We can't let that stand. So we're, we're, we're willing to share things just as fast. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is we share the falsehoods and we damage our credibility in the process. We can do better and we should. Yeah. Um, one of the things I tell people is, you know, you should be watching the major news networks when you see a story that seems too bizarre and such as has any of our network share of a story. I don't care if it's liberal or conservative. Because usually, if they're talking about the same kinds of stories, many times they're just sharing different perspectives on it. Right. After the Parkland shooting, for instance, one of my cousins, who's a liberal, mm-hmm. shared a story of the guy to my pet. This is the 18th school shooting this year in America. And I look at that and think, you know, I, I'm not saying I watch the news every day or such, but I think I would have heard something about some other school shootings taking place. Right. And I do some checking and find like one of them, for instance, is a guy who poured into a school parking lot at night and shot himself in the parking lot with no students in attendance. How that constitutes a school shooting, I don't know. Right. But here someone shared it, and there's no checking on it whatsoever. It really does just embarrass us, and it shows that ultimately, I think all of us, to some extent, are gullible. I mean, uh, I think another example is when uh, there was that story being shared a few years ago with, I think it was Karen King was her name, who claimed to have that excerpt from a writing that said that Jesus had a wife. And mm-hmm. the whole joke going around with, with atheists on the internet says, First century gospels, nah, too, rel- too unreliable, can't be trusted, not close to eyewitnesses and such. Fourth century excerpt says Jesus was married. Ha, knew it all along, definitely. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing is that, I, you know, there's a, a common uh, thing that happens with all human beings, and we have to, we have to deal with it um, within each one of us, is confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Is that we'll look at evidence, sometimes even the same exact evidence, and come to the opposite conclusions as somebody else who's also reasonable, who we also might respect, but because it actually helps our position or we make it help our position. So yeah, you'll, 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 someone will cling to a fourth century document as if it helps, uh, helps them uh, rather than the first century eyewitness documents because those don't um, because of confirmation bias. But I think what's happened in the post-truth culture is we've taken human confirmation bias and made it a virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually virtuous now. Um, which is why you subordinate facts and truth 
the feelings and preferences because if the facts don't fit, well, we'll either lie about the facts, which is the hard mode of post-truth, or we'll ignore them, which is the soft mode, until they fit our narrative. Um, and then when they fit our narrative, then we'll bring them up. And if they never fit our narrative, and if they never do, we'll never bring them up. Um, and all of us are succumbing to that. And I think if the church is going to get better at it, we have to get the post-truth log out of our own eye before we can get the post-truth speck out of our brother's eye. But at the same time, recognizing and be wise that everyone is doing this, whether they're scientists, whether they're uh, in the clergy uh, of other religions or Christian Christianity, uh, politicians, our school teachers. Um, I think there is no one immune. No, not one, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. And so I think we have to um, recognize this is a very tough situation to deal with because truth, again, isn't being denied. It's just being ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think we should also move on, Ben, to talk about what freedom is exactly because we have this, this strange idea of freedom says, if you are free, that means you can pretty much do whatever you want. I mean, what is freedom? Yeah. So freedom, it is, in fact, mis, mis, misdefined nowadays. Mm-hmm. I put it so beautifully when he said that you can judge the health of a culture by the way it deals with its chief virtues. Mm-hmm. And in the West, the chief virtue, the chief virtue is freedom. Mm-hmm. All of our movies are based on it. Are the you know the ones that make you want to you know run out of the theater screaming you know like William Wallace are based on winning freedom and they're great movies mm-hmm. um, value freedom so much but there Isaiah Berlin said there are two sides to freedom there's negative freedom which isn't a bad thing it's just a way to put it negative freedom is freedom from restriction but there's positive freedom which is the freedom for the greater good to do that which is the ideal. So if you can't have positive freedom to do the best things unless you have negative freedom, which is freedom from restriction. Otherwise, you know, the government will tell you what's right and what's wrong, and there's no way you can actually do what's actually right and wrong because those in power are dictating it to you. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that we've not gotten rid of negative freedom. We've gotten rid of positive freedom. So we're talking about only the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want to do it. And so mm-hmm. I talking about freedom only in terms of negative freedom, in terms of freedom from restriction, it's like talking about a one-sided coin. There's no such thing. Um, You can't have a one-sided coin. Um, uh, So you can't have negative freedom only, but we've embraced it. So I think that what the culture has done is we've confused freedom with autonomy. Mm -hmm. And talking about freedom, but we're not talking about freedom. We're talking about autonomy. And that comes from two Greek words, autos meaning self and nomos meaning law. So we're not being free. We are actually being autonomous, which means we are a law unto ourselves. Mm -hmm. Each person is a law unto themselves. And we have preferences elevated over facts and truth. That's going to result in, and in fact, I wouldn't even say it's going to result. I'd say it's already resulting in chaos. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, my preferences might are my preferences, and they might conflict with someone else's preferences. And if truth no longer determines who's right and who's wrong, but our preferences still matter more, well, who's going to win in that discussion? It won't be the truth that will help us. It'll be power. And ultimately, and here's the tremendous irony, is that if power determines who's right, then the autonomy will be gone and we'll suddenly find ourselves not in an autonomous culture, but in a dictatorship where those who have the power or the loudest microphones will be the ones who win. And then autonomy 
ironically leads to enslavement. So freedom can't be just whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. That's autonomy, and that leads to chaos. Freedom has to have boundaries. It has not just enough, not too many, but just enough. Yeah, and I think we could all easily agree that if there's any area that this is express, ex, consistently said that we have to have this kind of freedom, and such at least most of the world today, it's the area of sexuality. Get to do whatever you want in the area of sex. I mean, how many women are telling government as soon as they start saying that we should do something about abortion and end what's known as reproductive rights and such. Keep keep your hands out of my uterus and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and that's because... You know, I remember, and not every pro-choice person thinks this way, but I remember the first time I engaged in a pro, uh, in an argument with somebody over pro-life, pro-choice issues, I was actually in a literature class in college. Um, and we read some essays by some pro-choice activists. And it was quite clear where the professor was going and what he liked um, and what the majority of my class was, uh, was, was, was into. And when I first saw the reason why I think the pro-choice thing uh, fits um, – with a narrative of the idea of positive, it's positive, it's a good thing to be pro-choice, was when a classmate of mine looked at me, who was, she was there on a, on a college scholarship, an athletic scholarship, and she said, um, are you telling me that if I happen to make a bad choice and make a bad mistake, that I have to give up my college scholarship, that I have to give up the right, my ability to have college paid for free just because of one bad tonight choice, uh, I will lose that. And I remember thinking to myself, and, and I did in fact say it out loud. I, I might not have said it this way, you know, looking back on it now. But, you know, when you're 19, you say things you don't mean. Um, I looked at her and I said, that's probably the selfish, most selfish thing I've ever heard anybody say. Um, uh, you are all about you. You are willing to sacrifice a life so you can have freedom. And that's, I think, what's going on with not just the pro-choice issues. Um, I think it's going on in so much of the sexuality discussion. Mm-hmm able to express. And in fact, I quote in the book, uh, uh, a lengthy quote, um, from one of the, uh, uh, LGBT activist, um, uh, groups where they say that they want to do away with what they call the ridiculous notion that gender is binary, um, so that there can be as many bodies and as many sexualities as people may wish to have so that they're all celebrated. Well, I think a moment's thought, about that would give someone pause to say, well, clearly not as many sexualities as people might want to have, because there are certain sexualities that are horrible, like forcing yourself on people. That's a certain sexual preference. We certainly don't think that should be given legal sanction, or maybe we do. Uh, but I, I don't think that the writers of that um, statement actually believe that. Let's say somebody has a preference. They're like, I can't really enjoy sex unless I forced myself onto somebody. Well, we're not going to give that person their uh, sort of, you know, quote unquote, reproductive rights. Um, of course we won't. I just think it's a moment's reflection. That's why we're immersed in what I call this culture of confusion, where confusion is considered a virtue and clarity is considered a sin. It results in these kind of things where you say contradictory things within the same statement. So in your effort to liberate people, have as many sexualities as possible, you're courting chaos, and then you're going to cut some people off at the knees because they're going to say, oh, me too, me too, I want in line, I want to get in that line, and you say no to them. Well, that seems very, very arbitrary. So I think that we have to have those boundaries once again. Sexuality is the place where I think we're seeing it most stick out, 
um, like a sore thumb saying, I want to do it in every way I want to do it. And somehow this will lead to freedom. But I can tell you, I'm sure you've encountered folks like this too, Nick, uh, in, uh, uh, in your personal life and in ministry as well. Uh, I've encountered people personally and through ministry who, who can tell me, look me straight in the eye, and more than one, in fact, m- many more than one, who will say, I've indulged in sexual freedom and it only leads to enslavement. I am mm-hmm. a part of a group with my wife called Celebrate Recovery at our church. And this is something common with many guys, and you have many of them come with sexual addiction, and I said something once in a meeting about that kind of topic, and it really stuck with a lot, and I said, you know, so many of you guys that struggle with sexual addiction, you think it's because you love sex way too much. You've got it wrong. You mm-hmm. love sex way too little. Mm-hmm. thing is, if you knew what it really was, and you really thought about it, you would treat it a whole lot better than we do, and I think our culture just really does not understand sex because we don't think about it. And yeah. say, look, we think about sex all the time. No, we don't. We do it. We watch it. We daydream about it. We fantasize about it. We talk about it. We joke about it. We don't think about it. Yeah, well, and you know, um, and because we don't think about it, then we don't cherish it. It's yeah. right, right to your right to your point. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, uh, two quick things on that. I remember. Um, I was at a dialogue where one of my colleagues was speaking, and he's same-sex attracted, but he has submitted it to the Lord. He is celibate, and he, you know, says his identity is in Christ. His primary identity is in Christ, and uh, until God changes that in him, um, he will remain absolutely committed to a, a faithful biblical definition of sexuality and marriage. Well, he was he was doing a dialogue with the leader of an LGBT group on campus. And I happen to have done a dialogue the night before with a, a Muslim and a Jewish uh, scholar uh, on the idea of forgiveness. And we had a great turnout, but his, his, his uh, dialogue was equally packed, but people were coming in pretty angry. You know, they, they, were, they were waiting to see what, what was this all about. Well, my colleague was moderating the dialogue and she looked at the, um, uh, at the uh, president of the LGBT uh, association at the school and said, well, what does, what does sex mean to you? And she said, she's bisexual. She said, these are the words. It depends on who I'm having it with at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, I I don't think I've heard sadder words in a long time. And then she turned and asked my colleague who, who has decided he is not going to indulge in it until such time as he's able to get married to a woman. Um, he said, um, you can have lots of sex without intimacy, um, and you can have lots of intimacy without sex. Um, but if you think that you're going to have sex and that's going to get you to something intimate in and of itself, you're going to lose the definition of both sex and intimacy because they get intertwined. And he went on and gave a beautiful definition of what he thinks sex is all about. Um, and I'll tell you this, what was so fascinating to me was that there were people in the audience who were from the LGBT community. And we have this video um, uh, where they're saying, I didn't expect that kind of compassion. I didn't expect that kind of a statement to come out of somebody. I, I was waiting for judgment and repression and sexual, like, you know, um, uh, obsession with sexual repression. And instead, I found something that was about the holiness of it. I remember talking to a, a young lady. My, the very first time this happened to me at an open forum, I'd done numerous open forums before. But I was at a, a public university, and a young lady walked up with a microphone, and she asked us a question about same-sex sex. And it was clearly about her. 
And she wanted to know, did Christianity have anything better to offer than any other worldview had to offer? And I went through the other worldviews and showed how they don't validate same-sex behavior. I said, look, the, the, the Bible is no different, um, except the why. Why does the Bible put boundaries on sexual freedom? And it doesn't. It puts boundaries on sexual autonomy. But it, in putting boundaries on sexual free, on, on sex, it actually gives you freedom. And I basically told her uh, the, the long version of what you just said, Nick, which was um, essentially the Bible talks about every human being made in God's image, which makes you inherently sacred. And if you are inherently sacred, then you're not incidentally sacred. You're not sacred to me. You are sacred to God. And because God is the ground of all being, you therefore have objective sacredness. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're the sacred product, if you're the product of a process and you're sacred, then the process has some sacredness to it as well. And those things that are sacred need to be protected and boundaries protect that. If there are no boundaries to sexuality, then it loses its sacredness mm-hmm. and then it's commonplace. And then you end up saying things like it depends on who I'm having with at the time. And I told that young lady, because you're beautifully made in God's image, I told her a whole lot more than this, but because you're beautifully made in God's image, God wants the sacredness of sex to be in your life and doesn't want you to rob yourself of that. Mm-hmm. That's what the Bible says what it says. It's not saying this behavior is yucky. Stop. It's saying this behavior takes you away from sacredness and God wants sacredness for you. And I had the pleasure of praying with that young lady after the open forum. And I've seen this. It doesn't always work, but I have seen minds and hearts opened um, when you tell them why the Bible says what it says about sex. And it's not trying to kill your freedom. It's trying to give you freedom. It's trying to kill your autonomy, mm-hmm. but it's not trying to kill your freedom. I'd like to remind everyone, radio for an hour and a half or so today. We've got Abdi Murray with us, but if you're here next week, we're going to have Lewis Marcos here with us from HBU back again as well. And he's going to be talking about his new book, Atheism on Trial. But for now, let's get back to Abdi. You know, you probably know I got married kind of later, I'd say, in life because I had a hard time finding a woman. And I got married a couple months before I turned 30. So all you guys out there who are writing, there's hope, okay? If a nerd like me can get someone, you can get someone. <laughs> but, I mean, I we were as pure as we could be in many, many ways and such. And I've avoided pornography in my life, and we didn't see each other at all, and at least totally, I think you all know what I mean, until our wedding night, and that's when our sexual adventure began. Mm-hmm. And... I have to say that, you know, when you ask what it means to me, I, what I'd say is, if I, that question I'm asking, I said, it means my wife and I come together with total love and freedom, giving ourselves fully to one another with no shame, no fear, and each 100% devoted to the other. And to me, that strikes me as a whole lot better than saying, it depends on who I'm having it with at the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, because it becomes this situational thing, right? You can never have another first time. Yeah. And if sex is the most intimate and glorious physical act uh, outside of worship that we that a human being can do, mm-hmm. and you can never do it again for the first time, then the person you've literally de- dedicated your life to and said, you are flesh of my flesh uh, and bone of my bone, figuratively speaking, just like Adam and Eve were flesh and uh, uh, each other's flesh, literally speaking, um, we cleave to each other. In that echad, that, that's, that's the, the Hebrew word, 
for and the two become one flesh. That word in Hebrew is echad, mm-hmm. and it's two ways to say one. One way to say it is yachid. You can say that, which means the number. Echad means unification, and uh, so there's a unity of diversity within something that's echad, and that's actually how the Bible describes God in the Shema. A hero is the Lord your God. The Lord is echad. He is a unified. He's unified in his diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so marriage between a man and a woman in that ultimate act of intimacy, the physical act of intimacy, um, uh, allows us to reflect something of the divine. That's why it's a blessed thing. And you can only do it for the first time once. And saying it depends on who, I mean, the, the, the counter argument that I think um, someone would say is, well, if it depends on who I'm having it with at the time, it can either be sacred one time, which is with my spouse, or a bunch of times where it's not sacred. But that doesn't take away from the sacredness of the one time. Yes, it does. Ask anybody who's had sex before marriage, um, even with the person they're married, they're going to get married to. Mm-hmm. Um, does it become common eventually? And the answer is yes. But if you keep it for that sacred union, there's always that time when you look back and say, that was the first and only time I've ever done it with this person. This is the only person I've ever done it with. And that secures its sacredness. There's a bond of trust there. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with 100% what, what, what you're saying, Nick. And by the way, if it's any encouragement to, to this listener as well, I got married at 29 as well. Um, but uh, um, uh, my wife and I have been happily and blissfully married ever since. Mm-hmm. How many years? 16. 16. Nice. So if they, if they do the math, they know that I'm 45 years old now. Well, my wife and I, on the 24th this month, we will be celebrating eight years. So if you do the math, you know I'm 37 right now. <laughs> Now, but, Emily, we've been talking this way, but we have to still say, you know, freedom, really, it is a good thing, but we have to understand what that freedom is. Right. Yeah, and, and, that, and if you understand the freedom, it's not to do whatever you want, whenever you want, in whatever way you want, but you mm-hmm. understand there's the negative and positive parts. You are free to do whatever you want in accordance with what you should. Then you recognize something. Freedom mm-hmm always linked to truth. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, and following when he says, you know, uh, if you abide my word, if you be true, my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, Right there, you notice something. Uh, There's three words that are very important in that little phrase. Know, truth, free. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a matter of just feeling. It's a matter of knowing. And then truth is linked to knowing, but truth is also linked to freedom. If you know the truth, you will be set free. You know, what I love about the response, and this is so characteristic of those who were hearing Jesus, um, they get mad at him a little bit. They get a little, take a little umbrage with what he said. You know, he said, if you know the truth, you'll be, you'll be set free. And they said, we are children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we shall become free? That response is, is hysterical, actually. When you think about the fact that Children of Abraham have never been enslaved to anyone. They seem mm-hmm. to have forgotten 400 years of bondage to Egypt, yeah. um, which they celebrate the liberation from on Passover every year. And they're saying it while they're under Roman occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jesus, of course, makes that next statement, um, which, which, which he closes out by saying, um, so uh, if, if, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So if the truth sets you free and the sun sets you free, the sun is the truth. Mm-hmm. Truth and freedom are linked, but Jesus and freedom are linked. Um, in fact, a young man asked me that question at Yale University. Robbie and I had done an open forum, 
He said, I understand how you're saying truth is linked to freedom. I get that. But how do you link Jesus to freedom? And that goes back to your question, what freedom really is. If you have freedom to do what you want, and it's based on what you should, which is the objective moral law, essentially. Mm-hmm. True freedom comes when you have the ability to do what you want in accordance with what you should, based on what you are. And what you are is not the flotsam and jetsam of the universe. We are not chemical accidents. We're not you know, exceptionally gifted chips. We are image, be, beings made in God's image. And Jesus says that, and then we are redeemed, although that image is marred, by his crucifixion and the historical resurrection. So once again, the truth of the resurrection tells me who I am, and I have the freedom to do what I want in accordance with what I should based on what I am. And mm-hmm. that's truly free. Yeah. You know, we have another area where this kind of comes in, but it is definitely very much related Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times I've seen a story where you have a man who's a homosexual or maybe even a woman, but we'll just go with a man, and he's married, and he has kids, and he hasn't said he's a homosexual or anything. As far as the war knows, he's not. But then he leaves his wife and his kids, forms a relationship with another man, and what do the stories all about him say? He found his true self. Right. And I got how do you know that? How do you know what his true self is? I mean, you know, there's never anything about, here's all the wife, and, here's the wife and kids that are left behind. They're devastated and such. But they don't really matter at that point. What matters is he found his true self. And, and, and that's the, I guess because preferences matter more than truth, right? Mm-hmm. So he found his true self because he finally was able to match his lifestyle with his preferences, not, not his, his, he didn't, he didn't match his lifestyle to truth. He matched it with his preferences. And this is, I think a lie that uh, people are often, often told. And, and the reason why it's such an insidious lie is let's say somebody has same sex attractions when they're growing up and for whatever reasons. Um, I, first of all, I don't discount the fact that they've actually had these and they're not somehow illegitimate. They're illegitimate in the sense that they're not biblical, but they're not like, He's not faking it. He's not yeah. doing it back at mom and dad. You know, he's not going through a phase. This is real. And I know that because I have colleagues who, um, who have these things and they submit them to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he goes through life essentially uh, trying to find himself, as it were. And he, what he's told by the culture and even by close friends and by every movie he's ever seen, that if you find romance, you find you. If you find gratification, you find you. And so then he marries someone thinking this is sexually normal, not sexually moral, because we don't think of in those terms anymore. We think of sexually normal versus sexually non-normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he marries somebody, has kids, and then, you know, these desires persist. And we're told by the culture that underlying desire is who you really are, as opposed to willful commitment is who you really are mm-hmm. um, because it's an existential issue, right? The existentialist says existence precedes essence um, and that existence uh, happens and then you can mold essence. You can change essence. You can change these things, um, uh, these desires and all these things. And what you want is what's most important, whereas opposed to essence precedes existence. In other words, what we are meant to be is more important than what we 
sort of the blob that we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mixed together. And so that's the lie. So he grows up believing this lie. And then he finally can't battle his preferences anymore because it's a very hard thing to do to have um, romantic uh, or sexual preferences. And then he finally gives into them. And then he's validated because he found his true self as opposed to being told, like I think the Bible actually says, that you might have desires that conflict with the very nature of who you were supposed to be, but what you are, and, and this is the one thing you can't change about yourself, is you are beautifully made in God's image, and it says, the Bible says, in his image he created them, male and female he created them in his image, which means that the male in his maleness is created in God's image, the female in her femaleness is created in God's image. Mm-hmm. Come together in marriage. I gain something of the divine. I, I, I don't get. I don't become a divine myself. But I'm saying I, I, I engage in something beautiful of the divine because my wife reflects God's image in a womanly way, in a feminine way. And she gains something when she is with me because I reflect something of divine image in a masculine way. Mm-hmm. If I were to swap her out and replace someone just like me, I lose the unity of diversity. Mm-hmm. And so I lose that. And I don't find who I truly am um, in that kind of a situation. But let's say you're single. Um, you recognize your identity is primarily in Christ. And there's objectivity to it. My preferences don't matter, which is actually liberating. Because if my preferences are what determines my identity, well, every human being listening to this podcast and every human being who will ever talk to in our lives has some desires that they're terribly ashamed of and should be. Mm-hmm. Um, those can't de- de- those can't define who you are. Um, that's why I think Paul is so so so, so prescient, and I think that's why he's so. Uh, I think his words are inspired in Galatians five sixteen, when he says that uh, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I think the important thing is he doesn't say walk by the Spirit and you will not have the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say that. He says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What he's saying is, is that you are not defined by your desires. You are mm-hmm. defined by God. And this man did not find himself. This man gratified the desires of the flesh and in a sense lost himself. That's mm-hmm. the tragedy of it all. And I think we need to tell people that message. Yeah. And then we also have a whole transgender movement, which is one of the greatest denials of reality ever. Mm-hmm. And, it, you, you even grasp to be a whole lot of group thinkers. There's about something like a 0.03 or 0.3% of the population is supposed to be transgender, and yet all of a sudden the group of four girls from the same high school will come home and decide we're all transgender. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole thing about confusion being a virtue and clarity being a sin. Um, in, a, in a culture, a post truth culture, you're naturally going to result in a culture that views con- confusion as a virtue. And what I mean by that is, um, if you're confused sexually or about gender, you're considered a hero. There's a, there's a, there's a virtuosity to it, um, or a virtuousness, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're confused morally, well, then you're progressive. And if you're confused religiously, you know, all roads lead to God or whatever it is, well, then you're tolerant. But if you're clear on sexual boundaries or gender identity, well, then you're a bigot. If you're clear on moral uh, precepts, well, you're considered regressive. And if you're clear there's only one way to God, well, then it's considered intolerant. Mm-hmm. Why confusion is a virtue uh, and why you can become a hero is because you get to define reality. It goes right back to autonomy. Once again, we want to be the God of God. And Yuval Harari 
himself a secular atheist Jew, actually made this comment. I'm going to paraphrase it. But he says, we are uh, irresponsible gods who don't know what we want. Is there anything more dangerous than that? Uh, and I think that that's right. Um, there isn't anything more dangerous. And now we're beginning to deny reality. So I think that the thing that we have to be careful of is that there are people in the world who have actual gender, gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't adolescents um, for whom they have sort of a, a gender confusion for a short time and it goes away. The research shows that most kids who have any kind of gender uh, confusion when they're young, you know, boys who play with, who play with dolls or who wear dresses um, or who act like girls, the vast majority, I mean the vast majority, grow out of it, um, whether it's girls or boys. Um, true gender dysphoria is this feeling of incongruence between your mental state and your physical state. And that persists beyond it being a phase. Um, and it's unwelcome. It's not like the person with gender dysphoria likes it. So this, this idea of gender fluidity is, I would say, even more rare than actual gender dysphoria. So uh, Mark Yarhouse made an interesting comment in his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. As a Christian, he would treat people who have gender dysphoria and he looked at a girl who was there in his office, and she was trying her best to find congruence between her mind and her body. And she had been, you know, the church hadn't treated her all that great. Uh, and they were trying to pray the demons out of her and all this stuff. And um, Mark Yarhouse looks at her and says, um, I don't think you chose, you chose this. You, you're not rebelling against your parents. I think this is real for you. Now, I don't think it's right but I don't think you chose to be this way. Mm-hmm. He said that was one of the biggest great breakthroughs for her to get, you know, that, that, that congruence, that health between her mind and her body, because he didn't blame her for it. She just had it and she didn't want it. That's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. That I think culture is happening. That group thing you're talking about, uh, Nick, is that, um, human beings want autonomy. And what we do is we seize on people who actually have true gender dysphoria this tiny, tiny percentage of the population. And we say, oh, they have it. They have this thing. They can pick who they want to be. And if I can champion their cause to be who they want to be, well, then I get to be whatever I want to be. And that's why you have people like Molly Cyrus saying, I'm a genderless, ageless soul. Well, that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but she gets to say it because she champions you know, trans rights and all this stuff. Well, most transgenders don't want to be gender fluid. They don't want to pick out of a hat what they are, what they crave is congruence. They don't want incongruence. They want congruence. Um, and I think that the culture is lying to such people. Uh, and I think that we're, you know, contributing to it, um, by saying that your identity can be what you want it to be. And that's not the case. That's simply not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, science shows this when you see, and I cite them in the book, several surveys, um, done in some of the most trans friendly countries in the world, like Scandinavian countries, and they'll tell you that in uh, people who undergo sex reassignment surgery are 19 times, some studies say up to 19 times more likely to kill themselves after the surgery than the rest of the population. That suggests to me that the sex reassignment surgery doesn't deliver most people out of this incongruence. It just actually intensifies it. And again, it's not because the culture is treating trans people badly after the surgery, because these studies were done in some of the most trans-friendly countries in the world. You know, something you talk about being seen as intolerant. So my wife and I have talked about this some lately. I've said, 
And she agrees with me. I'm just saying, have you noticed that it seems the past few years, you don't hear much anything about tolerance anymore. It's like ever since the overfair decision and such, tolerance seems to be a, seems to have been completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the reason is is because they used tolerance. People used tolerance. I even put it in, in in the book this way. People brandished that word tolerance so carelessly around like a child fighting his father's gun. Um, uh, and who knows who's going to shoot with it. Uh, so we misdefined tolerance, uh, especially in the nineties, we misdefined it as acceptance and agreement. Well, that's mm-hmm. not what tolerance is. I, I, ask any engineer what tolerance actually is. Uh, and I, uh, was uh, fortunate enough to have been, um, uh, involved in, uh, legal cases, as an attorney where I had lots of engineers and um, uh, PhDs in metallurgy and various things. Um, uh, and I'd ask them about tolerances when it came to like product defects and failures. And they, they always talked about pro- uh, products, metals or plastics or whatever it was, having heat tolerances, tolerances to magnetism, tolerances to vibration or to cold. Tolerance meant the ability to put up with a stressor. Mm-hmm. It agreement with anything. Um, and so we misdefined it for the longest time. And then when, a to- when tolerance as misdefined comes uh, to fruition with Obergefell and other decisions, we suddenly don't need the word anymore. The word's no longer needed because now we have legal force behind it. Um, and so tolerance goes away. But the reality is if you're going to be truly tolerant of somebody, and I'm not the first one and certainly will be the last one to say this, you actually put up with something that stresses you out, much like a metal or an or auto part will put up with heat and it'll put up with it well. It can coexist. It can be stressed by it, but it can coexist. That's one of the beauties, I think, and, I, and I, I'm sure you agree as well, of the Christian faith. For 2,000 years, it's subjected itself to scrutiny and it has had no shortage of scrutiny, even for the very inception of it. It's had tolerance for stress. Mm-hmm. It's allowed itself to have tolerance for stress. Today, I think that we don't value tolerance anymore. And the reason why you're seeing it gone is because once we had legal force behind it, now people aren't considered intolerant. What they're considered is bigots. And they're considered Adolf Hitler. I call it the Hitlerization of social commentary. Mm-hmm. Where if you don't agree with me, you're not intolerant. You're Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even saying that you don't agree. I'm very careful in how I say it. They're saying, if you don't agree with me, you're Hitler. You can't even be neutral um, without being labeled Hitler or Stalin or some other despot. You, you have to agree with me as much or more than I agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so tolerance is no longer a needed word. Now we, we just Hitlerize everyone. I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the People Waters podcast. And everything we do here is supported by people like you. And if you would like to be a part of it, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link there. You can see on the side, it says, Help for the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you click in there, and you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yeah, you have. It's my in-laws are Mike and Debbie Bacona. You go and you make your donation, and you get in touch with them or me or Ari and say, hey, I made a donation and I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure we get that donation and it will be tax deductible. 
You can also buy some ebooks that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Stays Christian, or Defining Inerrancy, which I've co-written, along with uh, God and Natural Disasters, uh, Grounders, Christian Answers, Rich Generations Questions, books like that. And you can also go and... Uh, uh, after he's been married for 16 years, I'm sure he's noticed this, just like I have, that women tend to like jewelry. Well, we have a jewelry store at the site that you can go to, and whenever you purchase any jewelry from us through that site, where 25% of what you purchase will go to deeper waters. So guys, you know what I've told you. You can buy something special for that lady in your life, to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special at Lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them, guys. They're, they're such a great benefit. I mean, maybe I do would tell you as well that you all have no idea how much kind words... And thanks mean when you do this kind of work. Now, guys, please uh, share the work that we're doing here and try and support us out financially as much as you can. Uh, Abdu, do you have any organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, RZIM um, is a completely funded by uh, donors um, uh, who uh, care about the people who will, uh, our mission statement is to uh, help uh, thinkers believe and believers think. So our first and foremost is to do evangelism in the toughest settings in the world, um, at very very tough settings like uh, academic univer- you know universities and with the academy, um, the halls of go- uh, government and business. So if you go to rzim.org, um, there's places to donate as well. As well. And if you're into uh, humanitarian causes uh, such as, you know, relief, um, that are tangible humanitarian causes like relief for burn victims or those who were involved in sex trafficking. Uh, it was Ravi's heart to have Wellspring International, which is an arm of RZIM, uh, be the hands and feet of Christ, literally to help those who can't help themselves in some of the worst conditions in the world. So Wellspring International, uh, if you go to RZIM, you'll see, uh, it there and you can, uh, give your gift to Wellspring as well. Yeah. Abdu, you just talked to them about what science shows about transgender people and such. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would think that science is, you know, supposed to be a relentless pursuit of truth. That science cares so much about truth, but truth can die in science, can't it? It can. And, in fact, um, there was a study published. It made the rounds, actually, through Smithsonian Magazine uh, back a couple of years ago when there was a um, – a study that was done of studies where um, someone wanted to say, how can I, can, can I actually reproduce the findings of the uh, experiments that were reported in some of our most prestigious scientific journals like science or like nature. And those are reported in peer reviewed journals as fact, or as, at least established scientific findings. So they wanted to see, can I reproduce those findings uh, by looking at the, the scientific protocols? or looking at the, the, the sample sizes or whatever it might be, and can I reproduce them? Well, in some fields, they could only reproduce the findings in about 40% of the studies, which suggests, well, actually strongly suggests that less than half of those studies that were reproduced 
uh, or sorry, that, 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 were, that were produced in scientific journals as fact, less than half of them could be verified. And there's a number of reasons. One reason was maybe the protocols weren't published accurately enough or completely enough to follow. But oftentimes what they found was they were sort of published because they were fudged or they also found that maybe the conclusions were a little bit hasty uh, in those things. And, and the reason is, and, 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 the, and the scientists, to their credit, were forthcoming. They were saying, look, there's a high pressure to use funding uh, for sexy results, for um, groundbreaking things or breakthroughs to make scientific headlines. And what you don't want to do, although you should, but what you don't, don't want to do is spend that money on reproducibility, on verifying and re-verifying your um, experimentation, which is good science. You're supposed to do that. Um, so the point is, is that the pressure to publish, the pressure to be a groundbreaking scientist um, actually was more important. The preference, in other words, to be more, to be published and to be considered a famous scientist was greater than the commitment to truth. And it just shows you that donning a white lab coat does not make you immune from a post-truth mindset, it actually um, it is, makes you just as human as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing this as well, that science is succumbing to it. Now, I'm not saying science is bad, obviously. Science is helping you and I to communicate, yeah. Yeah. Um, broadcast this. And so mm-hmm. we're both opponents. We both, you and I, are lovers of the scientific uh, method and the ways in which it's used in, across various fields um, and some of the breaks. But science doesn't say things. Science, people often think science gives us this. No, it doesn't. Scientists give us stuff or scientists make conclusions mm-hmm. using the method of science. But yeah. science is not the panacea for all the falsity in the world. In fact, sometimes it can create it uh, because scientists, like it or not, are actually humans. And like all humans, they're fallen. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's also a danger of scientism where some mm-hmm. people are bad. They think unless you can demonstrate it scientifically, it's not true. And, you know, talking with atheists who hold this kind of mindset and such, it is thoroughly obnoxious. I can't think of any other way to put it, but just say thoroughly obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and when you look at the way, I mean, you, you pointed it out, scientism is itself self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is you have incredibly brilliant people, incredibly brilliant people mm-hmm. who say uh, things that are obviously self-defeating. The, the, one of the first people to actually say it, articulate it, is Hume. When Hume, uh, the brilliant man, the brilliant philosopher Hume, an atheist, of course, said um, that if you can't prove something by measuring it, testing it, or weighing it scientifically, then it's not true. Of course, that very statement can't be weighed, measured, or tested in some way scientifically, so his statement can't be true, in which case the whole thing is self-defeating. But then you have people like Sam Harris, who is a bright guy saying essentially the same thing, that if it's not scientifically proven, well, then cast it to the flames because it's nothing but sophistry. Um, this is because science, in some sense, has become a religion. Um, and David Belinsky points it out in his book, The Devil's Delusion, um, and you see it over and over again, that um, uh, it becomes a, uh, a religion in and of itself. Stephen Prothero, um, himself not a scientist, but a, 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 the writer of the book, God is Not One, takes on atheism, um, and he's not a Christian as far as I know. He says, the question of God is never far from atheists' minds, and they would never even consider marrying someone outside of their fold. They are, in short, no more free from the clutches of religion than adherents of the cult of reason in 18th century France. For these people, at least, atheism may be the solution to the problem of religion, 
but that solution is religious nonetheless. Um, in other words, they have a religious devotion to either atheism or scientism. Uh, and I think that we can point that out. And look, let's, in other words, let's just be honest about it. Let's not make it sort of this obnoxious thing where we say people of religion are uh, destined to a, a non-reason uh, worldview, but people of, of, of science are the, the, the pinnacles of reason. That's not, that's not the case. Right. Everyone has faith to some degree, and everyone has devotion to some degree. And whether you think science is it or you think God is it, um, there you have it. It's, I think that the true mark of reason, when you can say matters of faith are not antithetical by definition to matters of science. In fact, they are what a good friend of mine uh, said was uh, not semi-overlapping magisteria, but complementary overlapping magisteria. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's an important distinction. Yeah, and I think along with that also is this her mindset that if you are a scientist, you are authorized to speak on everything else. Richard Dawkins, I really would not want to debate him on evolution because he knows a whole lot more about that than I do. I don't study the subject. I can't speak. But I would gladly debate him on the history of Christianity or philosophy because he doesn't know what he's talking about there. But, you know... He's a scientist, so he comes out with the God delusion and where it must be a great book because Dawkins is a scientist, so obviously he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and that's the, uh, I think the, the thing, you see it in common practice all the time. I was talking to a doctor friend of mine just yesterday um, about the, um, the, the thing that frustrates him is that people think he knows everything about medicine just because he happens to have an MD. Mm -hmm. um, there's specializations, right? Even within the medical field. This yeah. is a brilliant guy who's top of his class and all these things. Uh, and he says, people ask him questions about certain things. He's like, I'm a cardiologist. I don't know anything about that. Um, so people assume if you're an expert in one thing, you're therefore an expert in everything. Uh -huh. And you can know some stuff about a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, I would venture to say that though you haven't studied in depth on various things in science and, 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 and evolution, for example, you could speak conversantly with somebody about what science is about and um, whether or not you can be skeptical mm -hmm. of the evolutionary um, narrative. Um, but, you know, if there was a, an expert that came in, you'd say, OK, I'm going to defer to that or I'm going to wait until another expert comes along. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's, there is this sense where. Um, if he's got a, the, the, word, the letters P, H, and D after his name, he therefore must know everything. Well, that's simply not the case. What's interesting to me is that, again, it goes back to that confirmation bias. If I'm a Christian and I hear that someone uh, who's a PhD in some field, let's say it's even history, um, comes up to the microphone, that suddenly they're qualified to talk about things they're not qualified to talk about, like maybe science or whatever it is. Um, uh, now, they might know some stuff. And um, I also don't discount them just because they don't have a PhD in something because maybe they studied a lot and they know something about this, this topic. I will, I will judge the arguments based on the arguments. Now, if other experts are agreeing with them, I think it adds a level of confidence to me. It's not going to determine it ultimately, but it isn't it interesting that if I have a particular bent, whether I'm a Christian or I'm an atheist, those letters are somehow magical. And they turn everybody's opinions into the opinions um, when we are required to weigh the arguments and the evidence, not just who's saying it, but what is being said. Yeah. Yeah. And science, the thing with it, though, is it does seem how the ultimate place or and I think of this, this comes into our own biblical interpretation many times that we think 
the Bible has to speak on issues of science explicitly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hold to John Barton's interpretation of Genesis 1, and I say, you go up to you and say, it's not a scientific account, it's not an anti-scientific account, it's just a different kind of account. And we have this assumption back here in the West, especially that because we're a scientifically minded culture, the Bible just obviously has to be speaking about science. Yeah, and that's the thing about like, we, we demand certain precisions based on uh, sort of Western cultural mores, mm-hmm. where we say, okay, we demand chronolo- chronological precision, and therefore Easterners must have thought that way too. Well, they don't. I mean, they don't do it today. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they have a sense of chronological precision, but they do it. Um, one scholar put it, I, I love the way he put it. He said, um, even when it comes to time, um, there's two kind of uh, things of time. There's chronos and kairos. Chronos is literally linear time uh, in terms of chronological, which we, what we get the, the word from. But kairos is about a quality of time or the, 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 um, the depth of the event. And so if you see something that seems out of time or out of place or maybe like not exactly in the right chronological order, maybe the answer, I'm not saying it is the answer every time, but maybe the answer is because it's not a chronos moment, it's a kairos moment. Um, and so I think that we inject um, our sensibilities, you know, back into the narratives. But there are also brilliant people, as you, as you and I both know, there are people who have different interpretations of Genesis 1, for example, some who have a hybrid of the th- of, of all of the interpretations who might say it's a framework hypothesis mm-hmm. or it's a uh, day-age thing or they meld them together. Hugh Ross comes to mind where he says, look, it's not being scientifically exact, but it is being scientifically um, uh, uh, consistent. Um, so they'll, they'll look at it that way and, and he'll explain it um, uh, through the use of language and all these things. I think that... Um, it's an important thing for us to make the distinction that the Bible is not meant to be a scientific textbook. Um, uh, I think I heard Bill Craig say this one time when he said, look, you're not going to find the infinitesimal calculus described to you in the pages of Job. Um, what you are going to find is the generalities uh, and maybe even some surprising facts that um, are corroborated by today's science, um, like the universe had a beginning. As, as but, but, but an example, for the longest time, we had a steady state model of the universe. And now we know um, uh, with a high degree of certainty that the universe began to exist. All time, space, matter, and energy began to exist. And the Bible, lo and behold, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Robert Jastrow says, um, scientists are only now catching up and climbing the mountain of, mountain of knowledge to find out that theologians have been sitting there for 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. So it's precise. Um, in the sense that it's trying to give you a textbook, but it is consistent. Um, it wouldn't be against the book of nature, um, uh, which is why Paul says people have, people can know that God exists and his invisible qualities um, uh, by what has been made because um, mm-hmm. they're not inconsistent. Uh, but I'll tell you what, Nick, one, one, one story comes to mind, and I think this is important because oftentimes if, for those people who might think that science and the Bible are antithetical, I was at an open forum and a young man, a very thoughtful guy, by the way, was challenging a colleague of mine who was, who was speaking. And he said, the problem with science is, uh, sorry, the problem with religion, specifically Christianity, is it's a science stopper. And he was using the God of the gaps argument. He says, but you just plug in God and it suddenly stops all scientific inquiry. Well, my response was twofold. First, I don't know of one scientist who's actually a Christian who thinks anything like that. Mm-hmm find some Christians somewhere who talk like that. I've never met one. And maybe they exist. 
And if they do, okay, fine, they need to be corrected. But I don't know any serious Christians who think that's, that religion stops science. And it, and it certainly didn't stop Galileo. It certainly didn't stop Newton. It certainly didn't stop Gregor Mendel. It certainly didn't stop all these people who are the progenitors of modern science. But the second thing is that the Bible actually promotes discovery. Um, it actually says in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is glory of kings to seek things out. In other words, God doesn't want us to be spoon-fed the mysteries of the universe. Mm-hmm. We have a subliminal and a sublime, I should say, a sublime experience when we discover some amazing things. And like a parent who delights in a child's discovery, more than the child himself does, I think God delights in our discoveries as we are learning more and more about the gift of the universe that God has given us. So the more we unwrap it, the more we glorify the gift giver. And I think that that's true in so many ways. Um, and uh, that's why Francis Bacon's credited as saying, I don't know if he actually said it or not, but he was credited as saying, as I study your universe, oh God, I find myself thinking your thoughts after you. What better privilege could there be than for science to allow us to think God's thoughts after him? Mm-hmm. Now let's move on briefly because we don't have much time left. Talk some about religion because Religion is never area where truth has died, and a lot of it shows up in our pluralism today, I think, there, where no one can really know the truth about God, and so whatever works for you, that's, that's okay. Yeah, and this is, the, this is the common mantra, right? I mean, I remember uh, uh, hearing this so many times by so many people, even when I wasn't a Christian especially, uh, I would hear it and think to myself, well, that can't be right where they'd say things like all paths lead to God or all roads lead to God. And I remember thinking to myself, in fact, I'll tell you this, even when I wasn't a Christian, especially when I wasn't a Christian, people are saying this word, uh, all paths lead to God. And they're saying it as if it was uh, respecting all paths. It's Mm. not respecting all paths. It's disrespecting all paths because it's not taking them seriously. How I know that is that when you say all roads lead to God, you don't even realize not all roads even claim to lead to God. Mm-hmm. In Islam, you don't get to be with God in heaven. You get to be in God's paradise. But there is no unmitigated or imminent presence of God. That is exactly what the point of, of heaven is in Christianity, to be in God's presence. The chief end of man is to glorify God and delight in his presence forever. Um, Hinduism says not that you get to be with God, but that you get to be God. And Buddhism says that the very thing in Hinduism that becomes God doesn't even exist. So your goal is to become nothing. So you, the four major religions of the world, and there are of course many more, but the four major religions of the world don't even agree on the destination. So how can you say that you respect all religions by saying all paths lead to God when the reality is you haven't even given them enough dignity to show them that differ on this very issue? And that's what I think is needed. We need to recover that dignity of difference. Give someone the dignity of disagreeing with them on some things, because then you show that you're taking them seriously. Yeah, I, I like to have some fun when someone says, says, do you think all religions lead to God? I said, yep, they all do. You just might not like how you how you how how it turns out when you get there. <laughs> yeah, there, there are many paths up the mountain, as they say. Well, I think there are many paths that lead off cliffs, too. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember when we first moved up, while well, we got to go to a, discussion. It was an open discussion between 
a pair of Muslims and a Christian, we were allowed to participate and start having discussions there. And I think as soon as I raised my hand to say something, my wife's something, oh boy, here we go. And I'm writing off fact after fact after fact. And then this third Muslim comes in and he says, you know what, I respect you. You got your path and that's fine and that works. And I wish I'd had enough to say right now. I said, look, don't say that to me. That's rude. Because yeah. if you think Islam is true, you shouldn't care about my path. You should want me to embrace your path. And yeah. interestingly, it's something I, I talk with the Muslims there, and I wish I'd asked this of a year earlier. As far as I said to them, you know, you're taking all these passages from the New Testament. You don't really understand what's going on. Have you ever read the New Testament? And the two Muslims of the dearest debate said, nope, we haven't read the New Testament. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, why are you doing a debate with a Christian? You haven't even read the New Testament. I mean, there was a time on Facebook, I once asked a Muslim, have you ever read the New Testament? No. Have you ever read the Quran? Yep, I've read it. Yeah. yeah and, and that's a shocking thing oftentimes. And I think it also gives us credibility mm-hmm. in that particular moment because like, I read it. Yep. Um, and, and, and it's funny because it's not just Muslims who would succumb to that. I've actually been on the other side where a Hindu has told me, I could never believe in your Savior God because, and they'll misquote the scriptures or they'll quote it accurately, but outside of the context in which it exists, or um, atheists. I mean, it's sort of a funny story. And I get a story in the book, too. I was doing a dialogue, more of a debate, with an atheist in Texas. And during the Q&A, an atheist walked up to me. And I knew he was an atheist because he had a, sh- a sweatshirt on that said atheist on it. Which I thought was like, is this, is this a team? Uh, it's really kind of interesting. Um, and he said, uh, he tried to use Peter Bogosian's book on me. Um, where he said, hey, Abdu, why do you think faith is a valid epistemological base? And I thought to myself, hey, I read that book too. Um, are you going to, you know, play, it's sort of a Will Hunting thing. Are you going to plagiarize the whole thing right in front of me? Um, and I was, but I was respectful. And I said, hey, I read that book too. Um, I think you're misapplying the word faith in that particular question. And he says, no, 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 no. And he started quoting the Bible. And he says, faith is the uh, evidence of substance for things that you hope for. And I'm like, well, if you're going to quote the Bible, at least do it accurately. Um, in other words, I think it's incumbent upon people. And I think people don't do this. If you're going to pick on a position, at least pick on the right thing. Don't do the straw man thing and pick the, you know, uh, cherry pick things that maybe you heard another atheist or another Muslim. And if you're a Christian, for heaven's sake, don't pick on Islam based on only what Christians have read about it or written about it, read the Muslims about what they say about it and then actually begin to take a, take a look at it. Because again, I think that that gives them the dignity of difference that takes them seriously. Um, and isn't just, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to take a playbook, uh, from, um, my side and, 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 and confirm whatever they're saying. Uh, I think that's important for us to do that. And if they haven't read those scriptures or read those verses of their sacred texts, um, well, then it's hard to take him seriously. Now, you have to read every single sacred text. I mean, good luck reading the Upanishads or good luck reading the entire uh, the Mishnah or the yeah. entire um, Talmud because you're never going to stop doing that. Um, but you can take, I think, the core tenets of a belief system, verify them with someone who believes that, that belief system, say, is this true? And then say, if it's true, I have some follow-up questions. Um, because now you're taking them seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, something I like to do with people when I'm debating, I mean, pre-show you talk about how you like seeing me debate on unbelievable on the Facebook or something. So sometimes I'll just drop this question in the debate when I'm talking to someone who seems to be particularly obnoxious atheist and such. I'll say, 
when was the last time you read an academic book on this topic that disagreed with you? Mm-hmm. They don't. They never yeah. do. And what a shock. They think the exact same way. Now, someone's like, well, I've read the Bible. I say, oh, good. We'll give you a cookie for that one. <laughs> Have you seriously tried to understand it and wrestle with it? Or are you just like, hey, I've read it. Therefore, I know it's dumb. It doesn't mm. work that way. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting. It was pointed out to me, uh, and I never went to seminary, but I, it was pointed out to me. Um, in fact, Ravi was talking about this. He's saying, you know, how many books by atheists I had to read in seminary? I mean, mm-hmm. he was reading Anthony Flew. He was reading Kai Nielsen. He was reading J.L. Mackey. He was reading all these big boys uh, on their, on their, on their, who were leaders in their field. And he was saying, I was, and he had to read Bertrand Russell. He had to read everybody mm-hmm. in seminary. And so he had to understand the counter arguments so he could understand the strength of his own. Um, and so I sat down. Um, I was actually moderating a discussion between a Christian and, a, and, a, and an atheist over um, some issue. And the atheist had said during a debate, you know, one day I would like to see if we could switch positions where I could defend Christianity and my counterpart here would defend atheism and see how fun that might be. And so someone took him seriously during the, during the Q&A and asked him, you know, Dr. Such and Such, if you had to defend the Bible, what would you say? And um, trying to see if you ever actually studied this stuff. Um, and the guy said, well, I would, I would have a hard time because, and then he didn't defend the Bible at all. He just, he bashed the whole time. It's like, well, you just revealed to me something. You couldn't defend it because you don't know the defenses. You've never actually read them. Um, and so the next day I asked him, well, what are some sources you've read that respond to the critiques you've made? Um, and it turns out if he did any there, it, it would be, it would, it, I would have been surprised. Yeah. Um, there are almost none. Um, so I think that, that you know, that, um, look, I'm okay with, I, I perfectly respect someone who says, okay, I reject this idea. Fine. But if you read the counter argument, because um, there's biblical wisdom there, right? Uh, one person's case seems strong until another comes and challenges it. Well, have you read the challenge? Um, that's yeah. not how we do courts of law. We don't allow one side to talk. We allow both sides to talk. That's how fairness is actually um, uh, elucidated. So yeah. I think it's important for us to do that. Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb is if you're going to go and argue against a position, you better know darn well how to argue for that position, too, just as persuasively. Absolutely. That, that's how I do my debates. I, I, I don't do a, um, a whole lot of debates per year. Um, uh, but when I do them, I pre- and the reason why is because I prepare for them a lot. I will pretty much read whatever my opponent's ever written um, or as much as I possibly can in a time frame or I'll watch all their videos. I want to know their position at least as well as they do so that I'm one, I'm not surprised, but two, that I take them seriously and I afford them the dignity. I want to make sure that if I'm responding to their arguments, I'm responding to their arguments, not my version of their arguments. And that just affords my important respect. And it also helps me because now I know what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, it's interesting though, when I talk about this idea of pluralism and uh, where we have this confusion and I, I pointed out in the book, you know, there's this, there was this uh, uh, series by Reza Aslan um, on CNN called Believer. And he went through and looked at all these fringe groups at different, you know, fringe Christianity, fringe Hinduism, fringe whatever, and various cults and different things around the world. He was very willing to say how similar and how beautiful and how much they find truth until he went to the Christian one in which they, they made exclusive claims and he was talking about voodooism and he was setting up the Christians to look like bigots. And it was, it, it couldn't have been more blatant, frankly. Um, 
And so we're pluralists until it comes to someone we disagree with, in which case we suddenly are no longer pluralists. The inclusivists exclude the exclusivists, and so they become exclusivists themselves. But one thing that I found, um, and I've often said this, and I'm not the first one, Stephen Prothero has said it, uh, Ravi has said it numerous times, uh, J.P. Moreland has said it, all the really uh, strong proponents of um, uh, understanding religion have, have, have said it, that all religions are fundamentally different, but superficially the same. But there is one fundamental similarity between all of them. Uh, well, there's two. One is that most religions, if not all of them, say that man is the cause of his own salvation. That we will do enough to please God or we'll educate ourselves enough into a, a utopian society or whatever it might be. Or we can become God ourselves by working out our karma. In other words, we're the, we're the solution to our own problem. Christianity, of course, says we are the problem, so we can't be the solution. We need someone who's not us to save us from ourselves. Mm -hmm. reality. But the other way in which, and this is, this is fascinating to me, the other way in which I find uh, most worldviews to be the same is their affinity for Jesus. Now, I realize you have some people, you know, Richard Carrier among them and other people who will deny that Jesus existed or they'll make fun of Jesus. But that's more of a recent phenomenon. Most atheists, mm -hmm. secular humanists actually respect him as a, as a social reformer and all these things, or they'll say the, the character portrayed in the New Testament is quite a nice guy, and I really like what he had to say about some things, but he, did, he wasn't a miracle worker. Islam calls him a prophet. Hinduism might even call him an avatar of Vishnu. Uh, Buddhism might call him a bodhisattva, you know, someone who's enlightened. I noticed this, that everyone wants a piece of Jesus. They all want a piece of him, but they want to rob him of his cross. And a crossless Christ is no Christ at all. And I said that, and I got this from Samuel's Waymer. He said, any religion that robs Jesus of his cross is like Judas. It betrays the son of man with a kiss. It says how much he loves him, but then betrays him by robbing him of his very purpose. And so they're all similar in that way. They want a piece of Jesus. But Christianity says, you want a piece of Jesus? Here, let me give you the whole thing. And the whole thing is quite glorious. Well, Abdiva, we, we've run out of time here. I'd like to thank you for coming on. You have a blog a website and email way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Sure. You can go to abdumurray.com, A-B-D-U-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. They can find out more. But also they can find videos of me on our uh, RZIM's YouTube channel. If you, just, if you just go to RZIM or Ravi Zacharias International Ministries on YouTube, type in my name, you'll see some videos uh, and things I've done there. And some articles are on our website, rzim.org. So abdumurray.com go to YouTube or go to rzim.org and type in my name and you'll see some articles by me there. Mm -hmm. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the audience today? Well, I just thank you, Nick, for what you're doing and for having me on the show. Um, I also just want to say, um, I think that this idea of saving truth isn't just a doom and gloom kind of poke fun or poke holes in the culture. I believe there's hope. There really is hope. We've seen thousands of skeptics come to our open forums and ask real questions to get real answers. Uh, and so what I try to point out in the book is not just that there's a post-truth culture, but there is a culture that's starving for truth. And if we do it with tact and with grace, compassion and conviction, we can reach the culture. And I am not at all surprised that one day I think we will see um, the sun through fog. And uh, I hope that this book has been uh, at least one part of um, uh, the way to get there. But keep up the good work. Um, and those who are, who are thinking, keep on thinking. 
The book is Saving Truth on Amazon right now. It's come recording. The hardcover is $17.05. The paperback is $16.69. The Kindle is $11.99. And thank you, Abdu, for coming on. And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. I do too. Thanks so much, Nick. I can remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Lewis Markos on talking about his book, Atheism on Trial. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>